Thank you, Ted. Good morning, everyone. Kids, have a great time in Gospel Project. Thanks to those who are helping to teach them. We will uh, be in Psalm 13 today. I will explain that. It's probably confusing to you, but we'll be there. So if you want to turn there, that'd be great. There should be a Bible in a chair near you if you haven't had one. Normally with you, feel free to take that one home. I hope you're enjoying the wet. It's a nice change, isn't it? Yeah. Psalm 13 is where we'll be. Such an encouragement to gather with you every week and sing and worship. Thank you, band, for the real great job that you do each week for us. We'll read that text in just a minute, but give me maybe two minutes to set up uh, why we're in Psalm 13 together. Titles have a way of establishing our expectations of what's to come. So let me illustrate that with a few movie titles that are currently out. La La Land, Hacksaw Ridge, and the Lego Batman movie. You have some set of expectations in what you're to experience based on those three titles. Pretty different from each other, right? Yes. All right. Now, when we hit the title Habakkuk, you likely don't have an expectation. That's because it's one of those books that is less talked about. So the set of expectations that come with La La Land or Hacksaw Ridge or the Lego Batman movie (laughs) probably don't hit us in the same way as when we hear the title uh, Habakkuk. So I think if we just jump into the book together today, the book of Habakkuk, that it would be rather off-putting. I think it would be something like Taking your child to see the Lego Batman movie, but walking in to Hacksaw Ridge. It would feel like a bit of spiritual whiplash. And so, while Habakkuk is an extremely helpful book, it is rather graphic and combative. And it asks tough questions in which the answers we're given are even tougher And they don't feel at first very helpful at all. And so I want to try to introduce us to a topic today, and then we'll get into the book next week. But the topic is this. There are tough questions that people have for God, and God can handle those. The book of Habakkuk is built around really challenging questions with really challenging answers. And so all I want to do today is hopefully introduce to us that it's okay to have hard questions for God, that God can handle them, that he's not surprised by them, that he's never going to say to you, whoa, I didn't think of that one. And so we'll look at a psalm in which there are some difficult questions for God with some answers that are given. Asking God hard questions is something Nearly everyone does from time to time, but few admit. And so what can tend to happen is 
Christians sometimes end up thinking, if we have hard thoughts towards God, that we can't express them. And that if we do, then somehow fellow Christians around us will think we are somehow bad Christians who have turned away from God. So what can happen, particularly in Christian communities, is there can end up being this massive amount of pretending in which we all think everybody else has all their issues with God solved and they don't have any tough questions about the hard things going on in life. And so there's something broken in us and everybody else has got it all together. But the book of Habakkuk is not going to put up with that. Literally from the very first verse, almost brutally challenging, hard questions are asked. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, our hope is that you'll find us to be a church family in which it's not only, expect, it's not only anticipated, it's not only okay, but it's actually expected that there would be things about God that you would ask that would fall in the question, in the category of that's, that's hard. Like we're not going to solve that one in the next five minutes. Our hope is, as a church, that we would be a people that would acknowledge the world's pretty messed up, we're pretty messed up, and God's really great. And how do all those things fit together is sometimes hard to ascertain. Whatever questions or questions uh, lurk in the darkest recesses of your heart, down in that place that you don't talk about, where there's cobwebs over the door because it doesn't get opened very often, and it's kind of stinky and dingy and musty. That's down where the book of Habakkuk is going to poke. Those thoughts and feelings you have that you're too ashamed to speak of, even to your closest friends. Habakkuk is just going to fillet you wide open and expose those things. I guess by way of introduction, what I'd love to say to us is we don't have to pretend that there are not those places in our hearts. The book of Habakkuk is built around tough questions. We're going to spend the next two months walking through them together week after week after week. But as I've prepped for this over the last six or nine months, it just felt like going straight into the first question is a bit too much. So we're going to take a short psalm where a bunch of hard questions are asked of God and yet resolution is found. Now we don't know if Psalm 13 lasted a week or years. We're not given that kind of information. But from crisis to resolution spans only six verses. And hopefully that will help us be prepared to move into the book next week. So Patty is going to come, Patty Russell. Patty is a dear friend, a faithful member here, serves with internationals. Thank you for 
that faithful work you do. Patty, would you read for us Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Uh, you'll probably notice in your Bible that this song has three stanzas to it. And the first one is essentially a lament. The second is a petition or a prayer. And the third is a basis for confidence. So lament, petition, and confidence. Let's just walk through those together today. The first is, is lament. Verses 1 and 2 are tough, challenging, hard verses. The kinds of things that we don't typically say out loud. The kinds of things you may not even feel the freedom to express to God in prayer. And yet so many of the Psalms are full of them. Just full of them. Let me read it again for us. Just those first two verses. How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Friends, sorrow plays no favorites. If you live long enough, you will face adversity. Now, what form it takes is impossible to predict. But make no mistake. Difficulty is headed your way. No one is immune. A commentator from the 1600s wrote about Psalm 13, Trouble outward and inward of body and spirit, fightings without, terrors within, vexations from heaven and earth, from God, deserting and men pursuing, may fall upon every child of God. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, it is impossible to escape suffering. Aren't you glad you came to church today? In these first two verses, we find David in tremendous anguish. You almost get this sense that his lament is so deep that it's rattled him down to the very core of his being. Now, no one knows for sure what David is so upset about. Some psalms have a little description underneath the title that set it at a particular point in time. This one doesn't. So, frankly, we don't know 
what's going on with David. If you read books like First and Second Samuel, you can find a lot of his story, and there's several moments that this could have been. It, it might be during the years in which King Saul was on the throne, and he wanted David killed. So David was on the run, literally for years, constantly moving like a refugee, hiding from the most powerful man he knew. It might have been during that period of time. But it could also have been in the time in which he was having problems with his kids. Parents, even David, King David, a man of tremendous wealth and wisdom and strength, faced some horrendous days as a parent. Let me tell you just a few of them. Second uh, Samuel 13 records the horrendous story of one of David's sons, Anon, raping his sister, Tamar. And in response, another son, Absalom, gets so angry with his brother, it takes him a couple years to execute the plan, but eventually he kills his brother out of retaliation for what he did to Tamar. And years later, that same son, Absalom, forced an attempted coup to try to take the throne from his dad. So imagine one of your daughters being raped by one of your sons, and then your other son kills that son. And then eventually you reconcile with that son only to have him stab you in the back and attempt to take the throne from you and get murdered in the process. Jeez. We don't know the issue, but whatever the problem was in Psalm 13, it clearly involved prolonged, prolonged suffering. Prolonged suffering is the worst kind of suffering. So it's one thing to get a sinus infection or even to get prostate cancer and have to go through surgery and treatments, but it's quite another to be told you have an incurable disease that will haunt you the rest of your life. It's one thing to lose your job and have to start over somewhere else with slightly lower pay. But it's quite another to come to realize I have school debt in the tens of thousands of dollars. It's like a mortgage without a house. And for as long as I can tell, I'm going to be paying on that loan. Whatever crisis David faced, it seemed to have drugged on and on and on. Do, do you hear that in those words? How long? This is a man beat up and exhausted by the suffering dragging on and on and on and on. And if you listen to those four longs, those four how longs closely, you'll hear that he's talking about trouble with God, trouble with himself, and trouble with his circumstances. It's everywhere he turns, there are comprehensive problems. Friends, don't underestimate the wear and tear of long-term hardship on your soul. Long-term suffering has a way of 
bearing down, of grinding out your endurance. Even those of us who think, we got this. Endurance is like your car's brake pads. Pressure causes wear and tear. And over time, they just flat wear out. David was worn out, body, soul, and spirit. Protracted problems led to unrelenting anxiety and distress. In the way we would say it today, David was a hot mess. But let's look at the specifics. That first phrase, how how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, take your theological cap off for a moment and just sit in that feeling. God doesn't leave his people. But my gosh, does it feel like it sometimes. He's saying... God, my prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. God, I can't remember the last time I was emotionally affected by you in prayer or by your people in worship or by opening the scroll and reading. You you just seem to have forgotten me. God, you've accidentally overlooked me. But it got worse. The second one, he says, how long will you hide your face for me? Forgetting is an accident, but hiding is intentional. Like, this isn't kid hide and seek. David's describing feeling like God has intentionally decided, I don't care for you anymore. This strong warrior, king of God's people, one who's seen God do miraculous things, is describing God saying, I'm done with you. Christian, have you felt that way? You get the sense that David's heart was like an untethered buoy lost out in the middle of the ocean in the middle of a huge storm. And he's just getting beat up from every side. And there is no land in sight. How long will I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? This is perhaps the strongest of all the images. David's saying, I am lost in my own head. He's saying, everywhere I turn, there are problems. And I'm a fix-it kind of guy. So I am attempting every possible strategy to get out of this mess. He's, He's saying, I'm taking counsel in my own mind, and I can't fix this stuff. I am a gerbil running on the wheel, exhausted but getting nowhere. But I can't stop myself from running. I can't get off this treadmill. My mind will not shut down. It's it's worry, it's anxiety, it's internal stress. Running, 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 and getting nowhere. 
Do you have those nights when you lay down and you've exhausted Netflix and YouTube and you're just laying there, but your mind won't shut off? David's been living that way for a long time. And he didn't have the distractions that we do. We have become a people petrified of silence. Why? Because of this feeling, taking counsel in my soul and finding no answers. That's horrible. Have you ever been there? When I was in my mid-20s, I was attempting to run life at a pace that was impossible to sustain. Working full-time and graduate school full-time. I had weird, bizarre physical problems then like I do now. Uh, Was in a setting in which a certain kind of spiritual production was seen as important. And eventually, physically, I just snapped, just broke. Developed a a tremendous problem with anxiety and began what I didn't know, now know, was having regular panic attacks. Like an elephant was pressing its foot on my chest. Thought I was going to die. I remember for months waking up and my very first thought was, is it still there? Is it still there? And every day got up, it was still there. This sense of I'm suffocating. So I'd get in the shower and lay down and just beg God. God, would you take this from me? I cannot leave the house again feeling like this. But I was a Christian. I was a pastor. You don't tell anybody that, right? I literally thought, I am losing my mind. I go to work and try to tinker with other people's spiritual problems. This went on and on and on and on and on. A mind that would not shut off. How long must my enemy be exalted over me? Apparently, David faced the possibility of death. There was some kind of crisis involving someone. And back then, you you didn't send out a nasty tweet about someone. You chopped their head off. Now this fourfold lament, how long, how long, how long, how long, is a very adequate description for what some of us feel today. Sure, you may have come in with a smile on and sung the songs, but really that's what you feel. If your future feels cloudy at best and not in any way worth it at worst, if you would say, really, I'm marked today by desperation, If in that dark corner of your heart, 
that we talked about earlier, really your temptation is to believe, my very best days are behind me. Then know the sorrow you feel and the confusion that's suffocating to you is something God wants you to say out loud. It's not something you've got to hide and be ashamed of. David did it. David recorded it. God has preserved it so that we can see what it looks like. You don't have to pretend every day is a trip to Disneyland. It's unnecessary to act as though you never have doubts about God. That's lament. Lament is common in the scriptures, and it's uncommon today among Christians. Those two things ought not be. What's common in the scriptures ought to be common in our experience, and in, in our vernacular, in the way we talk to each other. The next section of the psalm contains David's petition. It's the critical point of change in the psalm, but not in circumstances. Only in the heart. What is petition? Petition is just a fancy word for prayer. Prayer is the turning point. It might not feel like it at the time, but moving your eyes from being bent inward to being up, looking outward and looking upward. That's how lament changes. That very physical, I can see it. This, the first four, how long? What's David doing? He's, he's like this. Don't look at my bald spot. He, he's like this, right? But petition is he, he looks up. He looks around him. He looks up. Friends, that's what prayer does. Prayer takes us from it doesn't solve the problem, but it changes the perspective. That very physical movement is what we find in these next two verses. Taking your eyes off yourself and putting them up on God and out to his world. It's beautiful. Verse 3, consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I'm shaken. This is the movement from David complaining to David asking God to intervene. There's a marked difference between moaning and groaning and saying, God, would you help me? The, the, the one is harmful. The other's helpful. Now, note the specific image he uses. He says, light up my eyes. This is pre-light bulbs. You, you, you functioned with candles. 
But what's he saying? What does that mean? Light up, light up my eyes. David seems to be intentionally reflecting on his Bible. Namely, the benediction that the spiritual leaders of his day would have repeated to him over and over and over and over and over and over. We end our service with a, a benediction. Now, that's new for me. I didn't grow up doing that. When we first started doing it, I thought it was weird. And one particularly sweet lady in the church would come up and hug me when we started doing it. That made it even weirder. <laughs> but why, why give a benediction? Why send out with a particular promise from God? Well, this is the pattern we find in the Bible. So I've been in church 38 years before I'd ever seen one. That's strange. But David seems to be reflecting on a specific benediction. Here it is in Numbers. See if you can hear it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. I think when he's saying to God, would you light up my eyes, he's thinking about those words. David asks God, in other words, to be faithful to his promises. He asks for God to give him a clear vision of reality. He's saying, God, do that thing that the, the priest, every time I go to gathered worship, sends us out with. Be faithful to your word. Do what you do. Help me to see your face lighting up my life. Friends, God hears the prayers of his people. So pray. David's moved from anguish to, to pleading with God to a reminder of God's commitment to his people in the Bible. And, and that movement has happened simply through prayer, simply talking to God, can, continuing a conversation that God has begun in the Word. And this wasn't a one-off prayer. It was a sustained conversation with God in which David increasingly le looked less like this and more like this. Prayer does that. The most important thing that happens when we pray is not necessarily that our circumstances change, but that our hearts change. So, brothers and sisters, do, do you find that happening as you pray? If not, then you're not, you're, you're not really tapping in yet to what prayer is. You're just rattling off a Christmas list. If, if you're in a dead-end job with a crummy boss and no possibility for advancement, and if cutbacks and inflation mean that now, after years, you find yourself working harder for less money, then don't just get on that hamster wheel of a job search. Pray. Pray about what you're feeling. Let that prayer move you into the Scriptures. 
And then find yourself praying the Bible back to God. You may not get a different job, but your experience at the job you have will be incredibly different because God will have lit up your eyes. If you're about to graduate college, what's the most common thing you're hearing? Come on, we got some graduates, almost graduates. You, you hear, what are you doing after graduation? Friends, it's uncommon today to graduate college and know exactly what you're going into. That's the norm now. And so all that stress and strain and anxiety you're feeling as a near graduate, think less about, I've got to find the exact job I'm going to have. Tell God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's not so bad. What, what, what is bad is that makes me look like a buffoon. And, and I don't want to be thought of as, I just wasted all these years and I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just going to waste my life and live forever in my parents' basement. Talk to God about that. Look into the Scriptures, what the Bible says about who you really are. It doesn't have anything to do with your work. You'll find that even though you might not know the answer to that question, that you can reach a point of saying, I don't know. Would you pray for me about that? And simply walk away from that conversation with no strings attached. Your aging and your health is not what it once was. Every single step hurts. The only get-togethers you go to seem to be funerals. You're lonely, strapped for cash, and troubled by doubts about God. The temptation is to do this. It's to look inward and get depressed. Friends, you're on the threshold of being with God. But you can tell Him, I'm scared. I hurt. I've got regrets. I'm alone. The scriptures say, precious in the sight of God is the death of his children. God, would you help me to see that as precious because all I fear, all I feel is fear. You're single. Way, way, way past when you ever expected to be single. And it's an unwanted singleness. Do you know it's okay to say to God, how long will you leave me like this? How long will every other person, even ones more ugly than me, less smart than me, not, don't have a great personality like me, they're kind of stinky, 
How long will everybody else get somebody and I got nobody? Do you know you can talk to God like that? That's what Psalm 13 is. You're not going to surprise God with your questions. God can handle them. David asked them. And Habakkuk is full of them. And let those questions move you into the Scriptures, which moves you into prayer. That's how God changes us. God, light up my eyes. Help me see things from the conviction that your word is true and your will towards me is always good. When you find yourself over a period of time praying like that, you will find confidence in God returns. Irrespective of if the disease goes away, if the spouse shows up, if the job changes, or if you figure out exactly what to do with your career. You see, God's postponement of deliverance in a particular issue never equals abandonment or neglect. Ever. If you sit in something hard, Christian, for the rest of your life, it is not because God is punishing you or God has abandoned you or God doesn't love you or God has forgotten you. It is because God loves you, God is committed to your sanctification, and God is to receive glory and honor and praise. And if He leaves you in the middle of hard stuff for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, He is still good. And the satisfaction available to you is without measure. Despite what you might face. Paul said, I pleaded with God to take this thing away from me. This thorn in the flesh. Again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And eventually God says, it ain't going away. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So David said, so <laughs> Paul says, what? Anybody know? What's his response to that? I am quite all right, God, with you not taking it. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Do you have a category for that? Friends, the mechanism God uses to move us to that place is prayer. Verse 5 is where we see that. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. There's a movie out right now called Split. I hope none of you have seen it. The previews look awful. But it's about a guy with multiple personalities. This seems like David has at least two. In the span of six verses, he's gone from agony to singing. That's weird. How did that happen? Well, maybe David wrote the first four and some redactor later came along and wrote the last two. The this, this skeptical, anti-religious environment around us, that's the kind of stuff they say about the Bible. But in reality, what happened? David over here is like this. David over here is like this. What was the change? The change was prayer. Prayer drenched in the Scriptures. Prayer that's honest. Prayer that isn't platitudes. Prayer that isn't a checklist of stuff I want from Santa. Prayer that's heart-revealing, exposes us to the healer. And then he does his work. Prayer is what God uses to change us. Anguish led to pleading, which led to reminder of God's good word, which renewed his belief and confidence in God. Friends, the truth is God never, ever, ever forgets his people. No matter how hard life becomes, God will be with you, brother or sister, because God is in you. Where you go, he goes. You can trust God and walk in hope joy, quite apart from circumstantial change. I just have a moment more, but let me try to drive this home with the key word in the entire psalm. Notice the phrase, steadfast love. That's one word in Hebrew. David would have written this in Hebrew. It's a translation of a very specific word. The word has said. The has said love of God is the covenant love of God. Mm, thank you. What does that mean? Friends, we say today, um, I love pizza, I love boots, I love hopscotch. I love basketball. Jill, I love you. Clearly, we don't mean the same things with those loves, do we? I hope not. There are different kinds of loves within the Bible itself. It's, and it's hard for us to catch these as non-Hebrew or Greek readers. But what is the hased love of God? This is the love of God that, that is a marriage love, a betrothal love, a commitment love. It's 
The love of a husband and wife who stand and hold hands and look at each other and say, I pledge myself to you forever until death do us part. It's the, I will. I am yours. Whatever you do to me, I am yours. I give myself fully, completely, finally to you. That is Hased. David is saying, I got some crummy circumstances. But God held my hands and he looked at me and he said, you're you're mine. I'm committed to you. No matter what you do, I'm not going anywhere. I love you. And God did that for David, not when David deserved it. It would be like a bride the night before her wedding going out one last time, meeting a guy at the bar and going home with him. Then going back to the bar, bringing another guy home with him, her. Repeating that all night long. Coming to the wedding morally filthy. Having spent the last night of her pre- married life with four different men. And the groom holding her hands with full awareness that she had just done that. And saying, I love you. You are mine. Whatever you do, I am for you. I am not going anywhere. I have said you. As preposterous as that sounds to us, that gives us maybe just a tiny sense of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. When we were morally filthy, bringing nothing to the marriage ceremony but sin, Jesus stretched out his arms and died and gave us his very life. Brothers and sisters, speak the gospel to yourself and to each other in a life of prayer. Doing so will restore your confidence in God when you lose it. And non-Christians here, The Hased love of God saves sinners. You don't have to clean yourself up for God to take you. The gospel isn't what you can do for God. It's what God has already done for you in Christ. If you believe that Jesus came and died and rose again and now lives forever as king, And you'll simply hold out your hands as a way of confessing your sin and pledging your allegiance to him. Jesus takes those hands and he holds them. 
And he pledges a said love for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're here today and you've never done that, God's arms are stretched out. He's ready to hold your hands. We're going to pray and be done in just about two minutes. But would you consider sticking around and asking somebody around you, tell me a little more about that. We'd love to do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm that's so tremendously clear. I pray today for brothers and sisters who have lost their confidence in you. I pray that they would be honest with themselves, that they would be honest with you, that they would vocalize tough questions and feelings. And they do it most importantly with you, but they'd even do it with other Christians. God, that we could enter into each other's sorrow. And that then, Father, you would turn us from an inward bent to an upward and outward bent. That you would light up our eyes. That you would shine your perfect beauty upon us. Pray that you would restore fellow Christians' confidence in you today, God. Pray this room would be filled for the next hour, people having great conversations together. I also pray, Lord, for anyone here today who has yet to know you, yet to experience has said. Father, would you save? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.